I just want to extend my welcome as well this evening, if it's your first time with us. So good to, to have you here as part of this amazing night of celebration. Got a question for you. Who is the best person to lead our country? Who is the best person to lead the UK? Or who would be the best party to lead it? Now, I wonder what went through your head when I shared that. For some of you, when those questions were asked, you were like, yes, politics. I love politics. This is my bread and butter. And you're always keeping up with the latest political developments. And you followed the news about the new political party, the independent party forming in this past week. And watching the headlines, licking your lips. Like, yeah, this is what I dream about. And you followed the, the vote about the Brexit vote, about the Brexit vote, about the Brexit vote. And you're like, you know what you're talking about. Like, when someone asks you about the Northern Irish backstop, you don't have to blag understanding what that's about because you actually understand it like you love politics as others of you and I'm guessing quite a few of you couldn't care less about politics either you don't understand it or you're just like I'm not interested this is not for me and perhaps for some of you you've come to church for the first time and you're like first we had to hear about religion and now we're talking about politics as well you're like what have I come along to and you, you kind of, you know, when it comes on TV, you might switch the channel or just switch off and you don't vote. Or maybe if you do vote, you vote based on kind of what you think a good person is supposed to do, which is usually dictated to you by what your friends on social media or the celebrities you follow are saying. When I was a kid, I wanted to be prime minister. And uh, I grew up in a little seaside town called Western Supermare down in Somerset. Anyone from Western Somerset people? Good. We got, we got another one. We're probably related. We'll talk after. So um, Somerset, I grew up in this little town and uh, I, I started getting involved in youth council stuff. I was about uh, 13 years old. I started getting involved because I thought, you know, I want to change Western. I want to change Britain. I want to be prime minister. And then one day I got a special privilege to be sent from Western to Westminster. And I was invited to be part of a debate that young people and MPs and lords were having about introducing compulsory ID cards. So I went on the train up to the big city and went into this kind of posh parliamentary building. And I, I was excited about going, but very quickly I realised that what I'd expected uh, to happen was very different from the reality. And to my dismay, I discovered that what I was coming to wasn't a community, but a competition. And the MPs and Lords I was sat with weren't so much interested in getting what was best for the country, but what was best for their party. And there was this one point that really stuck with me, and I will never forget this, and we were in the midst of this debate. And the kid who sat next to me turns to me, jabs me in the side, and he, he kind of in his like posh laugh said to me, he's like, <laughs> never before have I found myself agreeing with a Liberal Democrat. And I was just like, what are you talking about? Like, you're 14 years old. Like, this is ridiculous. And you might think, oh, you know, that's funny. So I literally, at that point, I was like, I'm done with this. Like, I'm not going to get into politics. This thing is a joke. And from that day, I decided, yeah, I'm not going to be prime minister. Obviously, I would have been had I, but, you know, that was the day it all changed. And today, we're going to be looking at the book of Psalms. And I think it's an especially interesting text for us to look at because this is the largest sub-book 
of the highest selling, most quoted, most discussed, most influential book of all time, the Bible. And we've been going through the Psalms, this book of Psalms, for several weeks, and today we're going to be looking at Psalm chapter 147. And even though this book was written thousands of years ago, it's as relevant today as the day it was written, as we're about to see. And the Psalms are a collection of songs or prayers that teach us how to communicate with God. But rather than just being a collection of songs with kind of lyrics that you can read through, the Psalms are full of truth and a rich depth that teach us about ourselves, about God, and how we can relate to him. And the one we're going to look at today is going to touch on politics. It's also going to look at disappointment, and it's going to look at where you can find hope. So we're going to be reading from Psalm chapter 147. Uh, The words will be up on the screen. So first of all, verses 1 and 2, it says, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. The psalm starts by saying, Praise the Lord. Or in the original language it was written in, in the Hebrew, the word is hallelujah. If you're, you know, kind of, uh, you've ever heard anyone use that word before, hallelujah, it's a bit of a kind of Christianese sort of word and you're wondering, what does hallelujah mean? Well, it means praise the Lord, praise God. And we'll come back to the significance of this psalm, this song, starting with that word later on. So let's keep reading, verses three and four, and these ones are really, really important. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in a human, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Those verses are so relevant to us. If you go to any place on the planet right now, or go to any people group in history you can see exactly what the psalmist is talking about. He's saying that within each of us, there's this inbuilt longing, this inbuilt desire to have a prince who can save us. We put our trust in princes, people of positions of power and influence. We say things like, well, and we see this all the time in our country right now, if we just elect this person... They'll sort things out. If we just get them in power, then we'll be good. Or if we, if we just had the sovereignty as Brits to have our own laws and leaders, then we'd be okay. Or if we just joined with other European nations and their leaders and we all uh, were together in this, then we'd be okay. That's the best thing. I trust in that option. Trusting in princes is nothing new. If you read the Bible in the book of 1 Samuel, there's a time where the people of Israel say they want a king. So up until that point, the people of Israel had been led by judges who at their best when they were living righteously before God would hear from God and then direct the people how to live. But all the other people around them had kings, mighty warrior kings. And so the people of Israel got jealous of the other people around them and said to God, or said to Samuel the prophet who oversaw them, they said, we want a king. And so Samuel goes before God and says, this is what the people want. And and God says, look, tell the people, if you have a king, it's going to cause you no end of problems. 
But they insist. And so God says, have it your way. So they get a king, King Saul. Now on paper, King Saul is like your ideal king. He's tall, he's handsome, he's strong. He's kind of the one who'd have like an amazing Instagram following. He'd be the trendy one playing basketball with Jay-Z. Like he's the one who on paper, who are like, yes, I'll have a cool poster of you on my wall. Like he is the poster boy prince. And he screws it up. So then like, oh, we, we need someone else. Let's have a new king. So they get David. Now, thankfully, David is better. But better, he also, uh, he had someone murdered after he, oh yeah, he had an affair with that guy's wife. Uh, and he also was a terrible dad. His whole family fell apart. They started killing each other. So he didn't exactly do the greatest of jobs himself. But then he had a son, Solomon. You think, okay, finally, here's a king, a leader who he can trust in it. He was the wisest man, it said, who ever lived. And yet he just went off with a load of women. It says by the end of his life, he'd had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Wise Prince Solomon, the king. And then he hands over to, well, the kingdom divides. It all becomes a mess. And king after king after king keeps rebelling and uh, living in evil ways. And if you read the Old Testament, it's actually quite depressing at times how everyone just keeps screwing up. And occasionally you get a good person But then often their son isn't particularly great, and it's not long before things are bad again. And the psalmist is responding to this longing that he sees within humanity, within us, that we want a prince, we want a leader, someone with power and influence to save us. Because we think there must be something more. Surely what we're experiencing right now, whether it's in the UK or the people of Israel, we think there's got to be something more. There must be something better than what we're currently experiencing. But the problem is, these leaders never meet up to our expectations. Why? Well, as it says in verses 3 to 4, it's because they're simply a son of man, a human being in whom there is no salvation When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. The writer of the Psalms is trying to make it crystal clear just how temporary and flimsy we all are, even the best of us. And when you put your hope in princes, in people, you're looking to someone with the same DNA, the same limitations and the same capacity to do something different than you can do, hoping that they can save you. And an interesting thing that we don't see because we read it in English is that in the verses we just read, the word for humans and the word for earth are effectively the same. So the word for earth in verse 4 is Adama, and the original word for man found in verse 3 is Adam where we get the first man. And what the writer is trying to to kind of just press home to us is that we as humans are like the earth. That when God created us, he made us from the earth, and when we die, we go back to earth. It's a bit like that phrase that you might have heard if you've ever been to a funeral. What's it say? Dust to dust, ashes to ashes. The psalmist is making it crystal clear that if you're putting your hope, if you're building your life on people, 
You're building it on dust and unstable ground. I'm half American, and uh, I remember when uh, President Obama got elected, and it was, there's all this like excitement, and uh, you know, there's all this like he's going to change things, and it's going to be awesome. We've got hope now, and it's going to be so so good. And then the years passed, and all these hopes and promises, all these people who've been unemployed for years are like, wait, we, we thought he was going to save us. Like, we were so pumped about that, and well, I've still got the, the hope poster on my wall. Yeah, I've been unemployed for years. Like, what's happening? And then a new face comes. Oh, he's promised to open the factories again. He's promised to save us. I believe it. I'm going to vote for Trump. And then the cycle continues, and the years pass, and you still don't have what was promised. And you think, oh, here's a new name. Surely they'll save us. And if you've ever studied American politics, you'll know how the cycle goes. You have people saying, this party, the Democrats, they'll save us. Oh, that didn't work out. Now, the Republicans, they'll save us. And then it changes. And that doesn't work. Oh, no, the Democrats. And it just goes back and forth and back and forth. And we just think, yeah, just the next time, that will be the right one. And the disappointment keeps happening because we're putting our trust in dust. And sometimes they're trendy or well-spoken or well-educated or good at basketball and got a great profile on Instagram. But they're dust, just like us. And the leader we have does make a difference, that is important, but they'll never fully satisfy It's why so many people can passionately vote and campaign for one person and one party and literally within a matter of months or years can be going in a completely different direction because you get disillusioned. And some of us have become disillusioned so, so many times that we've given up hope altogether. And it's not just in politicians. It's in lots of different people of power and influence. It might be in church leaders. Maybe you've been in a church where a leader talked a good talk from stage, but he didn't practice what he preached. I was in a church like that, where the leader, amazing preacher, amazing leader, but behind the scenes, his life wasn't what the platform would show. And he fell from ministry and caused loads of damage. Loads of my friends just like, ah, if that's what he's like, I'm done with all this. Maybe that's you. Maybe that's something you've wrestled with. Or a celebrity, that person who's your, your favorite actor or your favorite musician and you love them, you've got all their CDs or DVDs on your shelf and then the headlines come out and you found out they weren't who they had claimed to be and they've been abusing their position. Perhaps a bit closer to home for you, you've been putting a trust in a partner. If I can just get a partner, then, you know, I'll never be lonely again and I'll never be insecure again and they'll, they'll be telling me all these nice things about me and I have someone to hang out with and then I'll be okay. I'm building my trust in, in my partner. And then inevitably, they can't meet up to those expectations. Some of the loneliest people are people who've been married for years. It's one of the princes we can put our trust in. Some are putting their trust in another prince or queen. And this one is just as flimsy. Your hope is built on having more of this. It's the reason why, however much someone encourages you or challenges you, you can't give generously. You can't give sacrificially. You work, 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 work hard. So, so many hours, so much time that you can't serve, that you can't be part of community, that you can't be available when someone's in a time of need. 
But trusting in money leaves us shortchanged. And the comforts and the luxuries we strive to get never fulfill. So what's the solution when we feel let down and disillusioned? By princes, pastors, parents, or partners? Do we say, well, what's the point? I'm just giving up. There's no hope. This is pointless. Just don't even bother. Is that what we should do? No. It's right that we have this internal yearning for a, a, a prince that can save us. We've been made to long for something. Not something, but someone who can take us out of where we are and lead us into something better. We were made to long for something more, but not a, a prince that will, will go for eight years until he's voted off or will die, but an eternal one that will never leave us and never let us down. And not one to make us wealthy or successful or popular or comfortable, but someone who can fulfill and solve our deepest needs. What type of prince is that? The psalmist goes on to describe him in the blessings of following him. Verse 5, it says, Blessed is he whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. This passage shows us what the perfect prince is like. It shows us what God is like as our perfect leader, both in a, a practical and physical sense, but also in a spiritual sense. So firstly, it shows this kind of the, the practical and physical nature of, of God as our king. It says um, he has a heart for the poor, the hurting, the lost, the refugee, the victim. It's a theme that's constant throughout the Bible. If you want to flick, flick through a Bible, you won't go for too long before you find a verse or a story explaining God's heart for the poor. Jesus, the embodiment of God on earth, Always, as he was going, was healing the sick, speaking with the outcasts whose society said, you need to reject them, being with the people on the fringes. And he didn't come as this grandiose king, but he came as a servant who washed people's feet. It's why we care about politics, because politics enables us to care for the poor. It's why we care about who's voted in and why it's important for us to think about these things as Christians because who's in power, the prince we have over our land, will enable us to enact more justice and freedom and compassion. Jesus cares deeply about the poor and the marginalised and the hurting and so we do too. But it doesn't just stop there. Jesus isn't simply a social action campaigner. He's so much more. The psalm isn't just talking about the physical po poverty which God cares about so much and we do too. It's talking about spiritual poverty. 
It doesn't, because if you just read it that way, way, you might be like, oh, that's great that God cares about the people over there who are poor or the people over there who are in chains, but it doesn't really relate to me. No, this relates to every single one of us. It's saying that it's not just a select group, but every single one of us who is in chains, spiritual ones. It's saying in these verses, we have blind eyes. The spiritual reality is that we're in darkness. We can't save ourselves, but the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. It says that we're hungry. We know that there has to be something more than just living for this life for how many decades we may have on this earth that have no meaning, that happen by accident, that this is all there is. No, it says that God is the one who gives you your deepest need. It says we're sojourners, the migrant, spiritually. We're far from our home in God. And we desire to have this place, this peace with God. And it says that the Lord watches over you. Over you. We're fatherless. Disconnected and distant from our creator. But God has come to restore that relationship to uphold you, love you, and protect you. That is what God is like. That is the leader we long for, one who is kind and capable and consistent. And not just for a few years until they breathe their last, or until another party becomes more popular or they fall morally, but he is the good and eternal God, the one who never changes, the one who never fails and never comes to an end. There's one bit in those verses that you could rightly argue doesn't particularly sound like justice in the verses we read. Verse 7 says that the Lord sets the prisoners free. Surely that could be seen as the opposite of justice. If someone is guilty, then the just thing is that punishment is served. So how does that make God just? Was punishment not served in this scenario? No, it was. Because the prince became the prisoner. Our prince, Jesus, came to death row. He walked up to the cell. He took off his royal robes and exchange them with the prisoner for the prison clothes. And he took the punishment, the perfect, spotless prince. And whose cell was that? Whose prisoner was that? Who was the prisoner? Who was the punishment? Whose punishment was that to deserve? Me. You. It was mine, it was yours. We've been imprisoned by our sin, been blind to the darkness. And the first step is to see that. You heard in both Chesky and Lydia's testimonies a moment where they said they'd heard all of the stuff, but there was a moment where the eyes were opened. And the only thing worse than being imprisoned and blind is not knowing that you are. 
The only thing worse than being imprisoned and blind is not knowing that you are. We were imprisoned and someone came to take our punishment, dying in our place. But it's not the end of the story because Jesus is not still sat in a prison or sat in the grave. If that was the case, he'd just be like every other leader. He'd be like, wow, I love what Jesus stood for. He was such a good teacher. He was such a good person. No. Jesus did die. But then three days later, he rose again. And now he is ascended to heaven, seated in power, where he is praying for us, interceding for us, blessing us, and pouring out his love upon us. And one day, his kingdom will fully come. We see it in parts now, but one day he will come again. And all who have believed in him, all who have lived in him, will live in his rule and reign, his peace and presence forever. We can be confident as he's the eternal God, the one who made all things. As it says in verse 6, God is the one who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. He is the one who made heaven and earth, the one who made the dirt that you and I were formed from. You can trust him because he's not just kind as we read about in those verses, but he is capable, he's powerful, he's the mighty eternal God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the creator and sustainer of all things. He doesn't run out of breath like we do. He made the very air that you breathe. And the psalm talks about him being the God of all generations. Verse 10, it says, The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. He's not just the God of Bible times. He's not just the God of our parents' generation or grandparents' generation when they apparently enjoyed church a bit more. He's not just the God of 2019 or 2020. No, he will be God, God long after we've passed away. From age to age, he will continue to be God. King and Lord for all, for all eternity. And the psalm ends and begins with, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. This prayer, this song starts, as you saw at the beginning, and ends at uh, this verse now with the exact same phrase, hallelujah, praise the Lord. It's this sign of like the beginning and end, the kind of cyclical, infinite nature of the worship that will continue for God forever and ever and ever. And tonight God invites us into eternity. That while we are just dust and have flimsy, temporary lives, Jesus said this, For God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever, that means you too, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. There's an invitation to you today to be more than just dust. 
There's an invitation to an eternal life and infinite significance. Rather than having to accept this depressing notion that this whole world, this whole existence was just a complete accident, a complete fluke, that we're here experiencing tonight the feelings and emotions and mental resting we're going through, all by complete chance, all by complete accident, for no meaning, no purpose. Rather than have to accept that depressing notion that this body and this life is all there is, you can have a genuine hope of something more. A purpose, a meaning, a life beyond death, a hope beyond the grave. Let's just have some real talk for a sec. I just want to be up front. This isn't always easy at all. To put your trust in God rather than put your trust in something tangible that you can touch and feel and see in front of you. And that's why God gave us the Psalms. Because we need to remind ourselves, as the world sends its lies to us and constantly tries to say, this is what life's about. This is what you should be living for. No, we need to daily come to God in verses like we've read in Psalm 147 and repeat them to ourselves. Repeat them to ourselves. Sing them. Text them to your mates. Put them on your phone background. Remind yourself over and over and over again. I'm not going to put my trust in princes. I'm going to put my life, my life on the foundation of the creator who made heaven and earth, who is never going to let me down, who's never going to leave me, whose love will never fail. It's not easy. But God's with us. And with his help, we can transform our minds to really live and believe these verses. It's why Jesus gave us Psalm 147. All right. So what's your next step? Put your trust in him. Not in princes, but in the prince. The king. The one. Jesus. How? Well, the first step is to pray. Just like Chesky and Lydia have done in their own lives, it comes to a point where you say, God, I choose today to respond to your invitation and trust you. 